Hey folks, I'm Jeremy. And I'm John. And we are Poemcast. Breathing life into pulmonary and critical care core content. Here at Poemcast, we believe in a brain-protective strategy, delivering information at 6 megabytes per kg. Y'all are so nerdy. So take a deep breath. We are diving in. Ah, that wasn't terrible. No. So I'm here, fresh off of our national grand rounds with... Dr. Randy Young, and I've also got a local ILD specialist at our shop, Amy Case, who's going to assist us in doing a brief Q&A with Dr. Randy Young post his great Grand Rounds lecture. Thanks, John. I'm Amy Case, and I have the privilege of speaking with Dr. Randy Young, who was one of my mentors at, in training at UAB, was the um, division director there, the director of the lung transplant program and the cystic fibrosis program for many years, and is now the um, division director of the pulmonary critical care division at uh, Penn State Hershey Medical Center. So thanks for being here, Dr. Young. We are so privileged to have you. Thanks, Amy. It's great to see you and to be here with you all. With the expansion of drug therapy for pulmonary arterial hypertension, how has that influenced the referral patterns for transplant evaluation? I think that's a great question. And as it, uh, as it suggests, the landscape of treatment of, of pulmonary arterial hypertension, especially idiopathic PAH, has changed dramatically over the last several years. Um, new molecular pathways are being identified all the time that impact the uh, pulmonary circulation. Um, medications that can be taken um, orally uh, are now available that impact many of those pathways. And uh, major advances like the recognition of how important combination therapy uh, attacking several pathways at once have, have occurred. So um, as, you, uh, as you point out in your question, the, the decision-making about how best to treat patients and when medical therapy should give way to consideration of transplant therapy uh, is changing all the time. Uh, what we've seen and what I think is, is true nationally is that the numbers of PAH patients who require transplantation has dropped dramatically because medical therapy has become so much more successful. And uh, I personally see that as, as a trend that will continue and perhaps to the point where PAH will, will vanish from the landscape as a, as a common reason that people need transplantation. Does the expansion of drug therapy and pulmonary hypertension affect patients with parenchymal lung disease who have pulmonary hypertension? Does it change their referrals for lung transplantation? Well, I, I think that the recognition of the importance of pulmonary vascular disease in people with other forms of parenchymal lung disease, be it obstructive lung disease or diffuse parenchymal lung disease, um, has been a major, a major advance. And the uh, open questions that surround um, does treating that pulmonary arterial hypertension with vasodilator therapy make a difference in the prognosis of those patients are, are really now beginning to, to be asked and, and answered in, in very uh, focused fashion. Uh, I think that uh, it's going to be a little bit different from the, the PAH story where uh, making the hypertension better really ameliorates the problem. Whether or not it will allow us to avoid um, transplantation in these other disorders or whether it will change the kinds of transplants that those patients acquire are, are less harder or, excuse me, less easy to predict. Um, the, uh, the landscape has already changed such that many of those patients are getting bilateral transplants anyway because of the survival advantage of having two new lungs. Um, and uh, it may not so much influence the type of transplant procedure, but it may allow us to delay 
transplantation for these people and, and buy them extra years of untransplanted life. It may, um, may make a dramatic difference in, in quality of life as we, as we move forward uh, for patients with these disorders. So uh, I think it's definitely going to be an exciting topic to think about and to c- continue to explore exactly what direction it's going to lead. It's harder to say. Talk a little bit about double versus single lung transplant. What is your institutional practice? I think there are a number of factors that that play into that important topic. One is that um, because we're we're now using somewhat extended criteria to um, select donor lungs, we're more likely to get a pair of lungs from a single donor rather than just a single lung. Um, Back in the early days of transplantation, there were uh, so many times that all we could get was a single lung from uh, a given donor, and um, and that obviously made it difficult to, to offer a patient a bilateral transplant. Um, now that we are more successful in getting bilateral um, donor lung pairs, and now that we recognize that there probably are uh, survival advantages to getting two new lungs, even in non-septic lung disease like IPF or COPD, um, we're much more likely to to do bilateral transplants as opposed to singles. Um, if, if you look at uh, data from um, UNOS, for example, the number of single lung transplants has pretty much plateaued over the last 10 to 15 years, but the, the rise in, in uh, transplant volumes that are being experienced in virtually all centers are, are almost exclusively um, in the bilateral lung transplant category. Um, so uh, I think there are, there are both disease-specific and more secular trends in the, the choice of operative procedures um, that, are, that are driving a lot of those, those considerations. When we're talking about the single lung transplant population, is there any utility in continuing therapies used for the native lungs, such as the new antifibrotic therapies for IPF? That's a great question, and, and I, I wish I had some data upon which to base an answer. Um, I, I don't uh, know of any data that have really looked at that question yet, as, as these medications uh, are, are so new. Um, my hunch would be that it's probably not going to be useful um, for a variety of reasons. One is that uh, the, the the residual um, recipient lung contributes so little to the overall pulmonary function of the recipient that um, it would hard to be it would be hard to justify the expense and the potential toxicity, the potential drug interactions of those medications with everything else that's happening uh, in the patient's medical life. What's your take on the age limit of 65 for a lung transplant? It seems to be a softer and moving target. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Um, back in the earlier days of lung transplantation, most programs used um, 60, 65 as, as fairly rigid cutoffs for um, candidate selection. Um, the, the variability among 55, 60, and 65 was principally attributed to um, the type of procedure that a candidate was going to undergo uh, with heart-lung candidates um, having a, a younger cutoff age and single-lung candidates on the older end of the spectrum. Uh, as we've realized that older patients can have successful transplant experiences and in many respects don't don't really seem to be disadvantaged by older age. Most programs, I believe, now consider age to be only a relative contraindication or a relative factor in determining suitability so that um, there is a, a burgeoning experience of people being transplanted successfully in, in their late 60s and even in their early 70s. Talk about transplant eligibility and obesity and metabolic syndrome. 
Very good questions, and, and uh, I think it varies a little bit from, from program to program. Most programs used to use a uh, BMI of about 30 as a fairly um, fairly discrete cutoff, but um, I think we're now recognizing that, that uh, obesity is not the same clinical syndrome from one person to the next. Some people are able to remain quite active despite their size. Um, some people have relatively little in the way of metabolic complications from obesity, whereas others have uh, severe di- diabetes and hyperlipidemia and, and, and so forth. Uh, so I think uh, rather than uh, focusing so much on the the body mass index alone, which, as we know, is already uh, a poor descriptor of, of um, size at the at the extremes. You know, large men and small women, I think, are are misrepresented by by a single BMI statistic in many cases. Uh, I think programs are are as they get more and more competent in their procedures, as they get more and more competent with their results, are willing to to push the boundaries a little bit, and and that's how that's how progress is being made. Where do ECMO and lung transplant mesh, especially with ECMO historically being considered as an acute rescue therapy? I think that's a very important topic uh, to, to talk about. And I, I sort of think of it in, in sort of two separate ways. On the one hand, uh, there's the role that ECMO plays as a rescue therapy in people with with catastrophic respiratory uh, disease, um, the young person who develops an overwhelming case of influenza, for example, or someone who um, has a, uh, a relatively sudden deterioration and hasn't yet been in, in, uh, uh, able to, to be evaluated and enlisted for a transplant. We now recognize that people who are totally supported, even on aggressive uh, arteriovenous ECMO um, circuits, can be successfully transplanted, and many centers are now um, willing to consider those candidates when uh, when the need arises. Can you help us determine which acute patients could be good transplant candidates before we put them on ECMO in the first place? Yeah, I think I think it all boils down to you know, sort of having it in mind as a possibility and being in close communication with uh, either your transplant uh, staff here or, or at a, an institution with whom you have a good relationship. Um, if if a young person, for example, uh, suffers a severe case of, of influenza and is unable to come off the ventilator um, even after that, uh, the acute phase of the illness has, has subsided, um, thinking about transplant early and having a, a frank and open discussion with a transplant center about that patient situation um, is is an absolute priority. Um, the the earlier uh, consideration is brought to bear on things, the more likely it is that the patient's going to have a successful experience. I think if you have somebody with progressive lung disease from another cause, say a young person with cystic fibrosis who's um, aside from their their CF is relatively um, healthy, um, but has just gotten so weak that they can't uh, can't rehab, can't exercise. Um, talking to both patient and to transplant center about the possibility of a, a pre-transplant rehab program that involves ECMO support would would definitely be um, definitely be in order. I, I think the the important things to consider are the severity of the patient's current problems and what other comorbidities might need to be addressed. Obviously, if somebody has a, a malignancy as the cause of their wasting disorder and it's that that's made their lungs stop working from metastatic disease, that person's not going to be a good candidate. But but uh, somebody who's got the primary respiratory problem or a systemic illness in which the lungs are the major source of morbidity, then, then uh, either of those options could be considered. 
What does an optimal transplant team look like? That, that's a that's a great question. Um, it's changing with time. I think that uh, back in the pioneering days, um, there was a tendency for for people to do everything. And, and um, I think we've learned that both for preservation of the sanity of the healthcare team and the optimal patient experience that, that uh, the teams need to be large, they need to be well integrated, and they need to fu- function very smoothly. Um, on the surgical side, uh, a, a single surgeon is, is not likely to to um, be uh, the, the best model. Um, ideally, you'll have um, a surgical group that uh, can share the, the needs of harvesting uh, donor organs and um, doing the implantation surgery and managing all of the surgical issues along the way. Um, the, the pulmonary team needs to have uh, people with, uh, with strong experience and clinical skills. It demands not only transplant pulmonologists, but people to uh, continue to provide care for the patient's underlying illness. It involves uh, people with bronchoscopic and interventional skills to help manage uh, airway complications as they develop. Um, it involves a, a very dedicated team of physical therapists and nurses and pharmacists and uh, nurse coordinators and social uh, workers and um, uh, you know pretty much people from every, every spectrum of the medical community to um, to, to deal with all of the issues that arise both in the pre-transplant patient and in the person who's had a, a, a transplant in, you know, in, uh, in place. It can be an extraordinarily rewarding experience. Uh, the opportunity to work with, uh, with the kinds of patients we're blessed to work with is just really wonderful, but, um, but it's not, not an undertaking to be, um, to be embarked upon without a lot of, a lot of uh, forethought and consideration. There's a lot of variability in size between transplant programs across the country. Is there an ideal size? Is there a role for a small program? Is there a good way to match that when we're looking at programs to refer patients to? That's a very good question. Um, I don't know that we could define an optimal size because, you know, the individual characteristics of of the people in the medical center and the geography are are so variable. Um, I think we do know uh, with with a high degree of confidence that there's a threshold effect, that um, very small programs, those programs who are only going to be doing a, a few cases a year, Probably shouldn't be in um, in the business of doing transplantation at that at that level of frequency. There are um, are lessons to be learned that come only with time and experience and volume. There are economies of scale in terms of the the people that can be brought to bear on uh, on transplant care. Um, and uh, exactly what the minimum number for that threshold is is going to be debatable. But I would say that you know the best programs in the country now are those that are doing. Uh, at least 50 transplants a year end up. As you say, there are outstanding programs that are doing 100 to 200 transplants a year and some that are probably even bigger. Um, so so I, I would uh, encourage um, a center that feels that they themselves might not have enough volume to have a program of their own to establish uh, pre-existing relationships with at least one and maybe several centers um, that uh, can accommodate the needs of the patients being seen at, at the primary center. I know from training with you in fellowship that there is no cookbook medicine for transplant, but is there a role for protocolizing transplant medicine and creating standards of care? 
Yeah, I think, uh, I think as you say, protocols and standardization of care to minimize variation are outstandingly important principles of, of complex care like a transplant requires. Um, I, I think having protocols in place not only assures that uh, each patient is, is to a large extent handled in the same way, but it, it promotes, um, standardization of the care once they return to their their home pulmonologist and aren't necessarily being seen every day by the by the transplanting center um that having been said uh, medicine remains an art and i think transplant medicine as much as anything remains an art and uh and one needs to to be a talented clinician just to to be able to to recognize things when they arise and to to manage them when they don't necessarily follow the script um i think as i've said before the the most important thing is very very close communication among all parties involved and so among the patient and the referring team and the transplant team and everybody else uh, who's involved in that person's care so at our institution we do donation after cardiac death how has ex vivo lung perfusion changed the landscape of lung transplantation? The, the entire face of donation is changing as programs begin to explore the utility of donation after cardiac death. And, and, and one of the things we've learned is that it varies a lot by which organs we're talking about. Um, th- there is seems to be something uniquely difficult for the lungs about the heart stopping and allowing the lungs to become congested. And even if that's for a very short period of time, it makes, it makes it a lot tougher for those lungs to, to be used, uh, in a suitable way for implantation. Um, uh, the, the whole EVLP, uh, technology, I think is, is well positioned now to, to perhaps be uniquely useful in DCD lungs. Um, they, it can certainly relieve congestion. It can relieve a lot of the cytokine stress and strain that these organs have experienced. It, it allows uh, healing of alveolar surfaces and airway linings and allows perfusion to be reestablished and, and just lots of good things that not only uh, allow um, the lung to heal and, and stand a higher likelihood of being usable, but uh, allows some period of time for evaluation uh, of how that lung is going to be able to do. No longer uh, does the DCD lung necessarily have to be taken out and an immediate decision being made about the, the wisdom of implantation. You can watch that lung for a period of hours at least and see how it's going to do and what its PF ratio is going to be. As uh, more research goes into uh, improving post-transplant outcomes, but in parallel to that, we are actively trying to improve the therapies that we have for diseases that are transplant indications. How do you see uh, the field of lung transplant looking in five years or in 10 years from now? I think that it's... uh was it Dan Quayle who said that predictions are always risky, especially when they're made about the future? Um, if it wasn't Mr. Quayle, my apologies. But um, <laughs> but I, I think it's going to be a long time before uh, we put our lung transplanters out of business by becoming so successful in treating advanced lung disease. Um, it would be nice if that were to happen. But I think even if everybody in the country stopped smoking today, we'd have plenty of business for the next 25 years to come. The... Um, more likely scenario, I think, in my opinion, is that we're going to um, push into 
the use of transplantation and transplant-related therapies um, for uh, conditions that we don't currently feel we can treat successfully. So maybe um, lung cancer, for example, will become a, a treatable illness with lung transplantation, uh, uh, even as our, our medical therapies for, uh, for advanced cancer improve uh, year by year. Um, it has been my privilege to be here. It's been my privilege to be your student, and we are so glad to have had you here today. Thanks, Amy. It's just been a real treat for me to, to, to be here, to uh, share some time with all of you, to, to see what a, uh, an extraordinarily successful and wonderful operation you've, uh, you've all constructed. Uh, it, uh, it's, you know, I think every, uh, every mentor, every parent, every uh, person who has the privilege of working with, uh, with people in training uh, lives for, uh, for this kind of feedback, and it's just a joy to see it happen. Thanks for letting me be here to share it with you. 